What a great song. When I first heard that, I thought of what we've been learning in the book of Philippians, and as Chris said, it's really straight out of the pages of Paul's letter uh, to the church in Philippi, and I thought this could be our theme song as we go through uh, this letter together, and particularly the passage that we're, we've come to this morning, um, Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 26. I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles there and read this with me as we begin. Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. Yes, and I will rejoice, Paul said, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ, even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Heavenly Father, we... I just want to, again, say thank you for uh, preserving uh, your precious word for us to read and to study, and we need your Spirit's help now to illuminate our minds, to understand what Paul meant by what he wrote here, and Lord, we're particularly interested in this epic phrase, to live as Christ and to die as gain. Lord, give us a sense of what that means and what that looks like in our lives today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we know that the book of Philippians contains some of the most beloved and often quoted passages in the Scriptures. For example, Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, God highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every uh, name, and the name of Jesus, uh, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Chapter 3, verse 8, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Chapter 3, verse 13, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 4, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And later in that same chapter, in verse 6, he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And the very next verse, verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any, anything excellent and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. And then verse 13 of chapter 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And last but not least in chapter 4, verse 19, Paul said, and my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now these verses really just roll off of our tongues. Um, you don't even have to look at them because uh, these are verses that many of us have memorized over the years and have meditated on and quoted to ourselves time and time again. But despite all of these, probably the most familiar scriptural soundbite, if you will, from any of Paul's letters is contained in 
today's text, and I'm referring to verse 21. Paul writes, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now some say that this is the theme verse of Philippians, and whether or not that's true, I would say that this pithy, timeless statement has profoundly impacted the lives of Christians in every location and in every generation. Verse 21 is Christianity in a nutshell. And in this famous declaration from Paul's inspired pen, he simply summarized what it means to be a Christian. In just a a few words, Paul very poetically and yet powerfully expressed the essence of the Christian life. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. This is how he viewed his life as a Christian. And this is how every one of us as Christians should view our lives as well. And as is typical of Paul's letters, he serves for us as a model regarding why we should live and how we should die. If we claim to be Christians... And if you claim to be a Christian here this morning, I think the question that we all need to ask ourselves is this, who or what am I living for? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Who or what am I living for? And the answer to that question is very important because it determines how we view death. How we view death. How we live determines how we view death. And if you're living for anyone or anything other than Christ, then most likely you're not looking forward to dying. But if your ultimate goal in life is knowing Christ and being like Christ and serving Christ and sharing Christ with others and exalting Christ in and through your life, then you can't wait to die because you finally get to be with and be like Christ. Now we know that most People live for themselves, and life is all about getting a degree or making money or achieving fame or excelling in your career or getting married or raising a family or acquiring possessions or staying in shape or traveling the world. You can fill in the blank there. But what people fail to realize is that death brings an end to all these things. And when you die, you lose all these things. And that's why death for most people is an unwelcome intruder that they dread. It's the the picture of the grim reaper. And death is loss. But for those who live for Christ, and life is all about Christ, then when they die, rather than losing everything, they only get to keep the pursuit of their life, and gain even more of their pursuit, who is Christ. And they get to see him face to face and to become like him. And so that's why death for the Christian is not something to fear, but something to look forward to. It's not the grim reaper, it's a glorious reward. Let me try to make this as practical as possible this morning. How would you finish Paul's statement? If you were writing a letter, if you were talking to some friends, and you were to say, you started off, for to me, for to me, to live is fill in the blank. For me, for, for, me, for to me, to live is what? Fill in the blank. What would you put in? For to me, to live is, is work. For, for to me, to live is money. For, for to me, to live is prestige. For, 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 me, for to me, to live is power. It's possessions. For to me, to live is sex. For to me, to live is partying. For to me, to live is sports. For, for to me, to live is playing video games. For, for to me, to live is shopping or exercising. Or for to me, to live is hunting. For, for to me, to live is going on vacation. For to me, to live is family. 
For to, lead, for, for to me to live is my spouse. For, for to me to live is my kids. If you're not sure how to complete that statement or what should fill in the blank there, I, I would just suggest to you that whatever you get most excited about in life or whatever you devote the most time and money and energy to in life is probably what your life is about. It's probably what should fill in that blank. And I would simply say this, that to fill in that line, that blank, with anyone or anything else but Christ is representative of a shallow life, a pathetic existence. And what's more, if you fill in that line with anyone or anything else but Christ, then death is not gain, but it's loss. And you could say it this way, for to me to live is money and death is to leave it all behind. For to me to live is fame and death is to be forgotten. For to me to live is stuff and death is to take nothing with me. But if Christ is our life, the way he was for Paul and the way Paul said he should be to us in Colossians 3, 4, when he said Christ is our life. I love that. If Christ is our life, then we will experience the same joy and peace and contentment and confidence that Paul did here in Philippians. And when you, when you read Paul's letters, letter here to the church in Philippi, if, if you didn't know better, you think he was writing from the deck of a cruise ship on the Mediterranean. I mean, just kicking back there, you know, on a carnival cruise ship and just kind of writing this letter and everything's hunky-dory and it's wonderful. And, and when you consider the tone in which he was writing, the joy, the confidence, the peace. But we know otherwise that he was under house arrest in Rome where he was chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day and that chain likely clanked every time he stroked the paper with his pen. He was there awaiting trial before Nero and was facing the very real possibility of being executed for the cause of Christ. I mean, this was truly a life and death situation for Paul. And yet he was filled with hope and confidence that God was in control. And he was using all of these adverse circumstances to to bring many more people to Christ than if he were free. And he knew that no matter the outcome of his trial, Christ would be exalted. Bottom line, period, that's all that mattered to him. Why? Because that was Paul's ultimate goal in life. Paul's goal in life was to glorify and honor Christ. And he was even willing to die if that would bring Christ the most glory and honor. I love that line of that chorus that for this I live and for this I die. I would die for this. I would would die for the cause of Christ. That's what Paul's saying. That's what hopefully you were saying this morning when you were singing those those lyrics. If it were up to him, if it was really his decision, which it really wasn't, Paul would have chosen to die rather than to live because then he would finally get to be with Christ and to be like Christ. And in that light, dying was far better than living to Paul. And yet he was confident that God had other plans for his life. He had still more work for him to do, including some future ministry in the lives of the beloved saints in Philippi. And so even as he was sitting there chained to a guard and staring death in the face... He was afforded by the Lord this rare opportunity to contemplate his life and possible death and to communicate his thoughts, put his thoughts in writing to the Philippian church in this particular text. And as we'll see, the tone and the mood of this text, like the rest of this letter, is one of joyful confidence. Verse 19, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and hope. Verse 25, convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you for all your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you 
again. So there was a lot of uncertainty in Paul's life at this point. He wasn't sure whether he would live or die, but he was sure of at least two things. And he shared those two things here in verses 19 through 26. And really what these are are two convictions, two convictions that that provide us with helpful insight as to how we should view our lives and our death. What are the two convictions that Paul had? Number one, he was convinced that Christ would be exalted by his death. That's verses 18 through 21. And then secondly, Paul was convinced that the church would be edified by his life. We see that in verses 22 through 26. And again, even though, even though Paul was in what appeared to be a life and death situation, and it was, it was actually the ultimate win-win situation. As the title of our sermon indicates or suggests this morning, this was the ultimate win-win situation. And by the way, if you're a believer, this is your ultimate win-win situation. All of us are in the same exact situation. We may not be in prison for the cause of Christ, but we are in Christ. And uh, if given a choice to live or die, right, it's a win-win situation. You can't lose this one. And so let's look at these two convictions this morning. And again, hopefully they will challenge us and encourage us regarding how we view our life here on this earth and how we view our death and our eternity. First of all, let's see how Paul was convinced that Christ would be exalted by his death. At the end of verse 18, he says, in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. And again, that ties in what Paul has just got done saying in the previous section, verses 12 through 18, uh, that Paul was rejoicing in spite of his chains and in spite of his critics that Christ's cause was progressing and Christ's name was being proclaimed, even if it was for false motives, by people who were jealous of Paul. And Paul says, who cares? So what? I'm just excited. I'm just rejoicing that the, that the name of Christ is being proclaimed and the gospel is advancing. And so he was rejoicing. He also rejoiced because he knew that God would vindicate him in his way and in his time for his glory. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. Why? For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. That word deliverance may have been a reference to his ultimate salvation. Or it may have been an allusion to his acquittal at his trial before Nero, or his escape from execution, or his release from prison, or all of the above. He knew that God was going to deliver him. It's, he said something very similar in 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. Notice the confidence when Paul was, uh, this was when Paul was before Nero the second time, and this was the time when he was convicted of a crime, if you will, for the cause of Christ, and beheaded. But notice his confidence nonetheless. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, At my first offense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so when Paul said, I know this will turn out for my deliverance, I think he had all of that in mind. Not just his temporal deliverance from prison, but also his temporal or his eternal deliverance from this earth and his body of flesh and, and, and being able to uh, enjoy Christ for all eternity. And so it seems here that Paul was confident that his present circumstances were only temporary and that one way or the other, he would eventually be delivered from them. As we often say to one another to encourage us when we're in a trial, hey, this too, what? Shall pass. This too shall pass. 
How was this going to pass? Notice he says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So God's deliverance of Paul would come through a combination of the saints' prayers and the Spirit's provision. Let's consider, first of all, the saints' prayer. Paul believed in the power of prayer, and he frequently asked others to pray for him. Listen just to some of the appeals that that Paul made in his letters um, to to people to pray for him. Uh, Romans chapter 15, verse 30. Now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, for we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope, and he will yet deliver us, you also joining in helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. So Paul saw, um, this wasn't the only occasion uh, when he was in jail in Rome, this wasn't the only occasion where he knew his deliverance was dependent on the prayers of his fellow Christians. He also, when he was in jail in Rome, in his other prison epistles, uh, in in Ephesians and Colossians, both he requested prayer uh, from the church in Ephesus. He said this in chapter 6, verse 18, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains, and in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So he's asking them to pray that he would be bold in his witness for Christ. And he asked the same thing to the Colossians. Uh, He said this in chapter 4, verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been in prison that I may speak it clear in the way I ought to speak. And then to the Thessalonian church, he said uh, a couple times, uh, probably the most familiar, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 25, he simply said, brethren, pray for us. Are you that desperate that you would ask others to pray for you? I mean, this is the Apostle Paul. If anyone didn't need prayer support, right, it's Paul. I mean, he's got this. And no, he didn't have this, right? And neither do you, neither do I. So we need to be like Paul and humbly request for prayer, people to pray for us. In, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, he said, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you. And so we need to learn from the example of Paul, that, that, that prayer is a powerful thing and it's, and it's really what God, the means that God uses to deliver us from whatever we're dealing with, whatever trial we're in, whatever temptation we're, 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 we're being attacked by, it's through prayer, not only our prayers, but the prayers of others. So ask people to pray for you and be very specific about what they should pray because there's real power in prayer. It's not just something we do because we're Christians. Oh, yeah, I'll pray for you. Oh, yeah, I'll I'll pray for you. No, do you really pray believing that God will hear those prayers and answer those prayers? And Paul was convinced that it was the prayers of the saints that would ultimately prompt the provision of the Spirit. Notice the connection here between these two. He says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. One commentator said it this way, that 
as Paul sat in Roman custody, he was confident that as the Philippians prayed, fresh supplies of the Spirit of Jesus Christ would be poured into his heart, empowering him for every trial and securing his ultimate deliverance. Don't miss the fact, by the way, that Paul refers to the Spirit as the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He doesn't say the provision of the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God. He says of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, he changes in chapter 3, verse 3. He says, For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God. So which is it, Paul? Is it the Spirit Spirit of Christ or is it the Spirit of God? The answer, yes, it's both. And the way that, that, that Paul uses these descriptions of the Holy Spirit interchangeably testifies to the deity of all three members of the Trinity. In fact, Paul in Romans 8, uh, in, in, in Romans 8 verse 9, he actually refers to the Spirit as both the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ in the same verse. And so notice what he goes on to say here in, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope. This was a reference to the external conviction that he had and also the internal conviction. This was not just, again, a wishful thinking or or crossing his fingers. I really hope, right? That's when we use hope in our language, our vernacular. This is... is, um, this is the way we think of it. I, well, I hope it doesn't rain today, or I hope I get this for Christmas, or I hope it's, it's kind of wishful thinking. It's cross your fingers, right? Hoping something happens. No, this is, this is, this is uh, not biblical hope. Biblical hope is a settled conviction, an assurance or confidence that is based on the sure promises of God. And so Paul says, listen, I, I, I have earnest expectation and hope. That word expectation, interesting word in the ancient uh, language there, um, it was used to describe a spectator who was sitting on the edge of his seat and stretching his neck out, straining to see the outcome of an athletic event. They couldn't wait to see, eagerly waiting the results of who was going to win or And that was how Paul was. Paul was just kind of extending his neck. He had this earnest expectation. He couldn't wait to see how this thing was going to turn out. And I think the reason he said this is because he knew the believers in Philippi were filled with anxious apprehension. That's, I think, why he said in chapter 4, be anxious for nothing. He knew they were worried for for Paul, for for the outcome of this trial. And so, so... he wanted his eager expectation to encourage him. Hey, listen, I'm not anxious. I'm not worried. Man, I'm, I'm eagerly expectant. And what was he, what was he so expectant of? What, what did he anticipate with such confidence and, and joy is that he would not be put to shame in anything. That, that no matter what happened to him, whether he was convicted or acquitted, whether he remained a prisoner or he was released, whether he lived or died, he was confident that he would never be disappointed and he would never be ashamed of the cause of Christ, but he would boldly testify of the truth of the gospel and stand fearlessly for the name of Christ before both friend and foe. I think that's what he meant when he said, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Paul was confident that that Christ would surely be glorified and magnified. That's what the word exaltation means, to be exalted, means to, to be magnified, to be made bigger. no matter what happened to him. Whether his life was burned out in the Lord's service or his head was lopped off by the executioner's sword, it it didn't matter as long as Christ was glorified and magnified. Listen to some other just radical statements that Paul made throughout his his ministry. Uh, Just how he viewed his life and his death. Acts chapter 20, verse 24 He said, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself 
so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. In other words, I could care less what happens to me. It's not about me. It's all about testifying to the truth of the gospel of the grace of God. In Acts 21, verse 13, he said this, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? This was when um, the uh, prophet Agabus had come and bound Paul's hands and, and warned him, don't go to Jerusalem because you're going to get arrested. And so everybody's like, oh, Paul, don't, don't go there. You're going to get arrested. And he says, Why are, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Love that. And then in Romans 14, verse 7, he says, For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. In other words, whatever you do, whether you live or you die, it's all about Jesus. It's all about Christ. It's not about you. It's not about me. And that's why he said in the next verse, for to me, verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. How can I have this, where does this earnest expectation come from? Where does this bold confidence come from? Where is this conviction that, 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 that as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death? Well, it comes because for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I mean, that's it, as simple as that. And this was Paul's philosophy of life, simply stated, his life was consumed with Christ. Christ was the center of his life. His life revolved around Christ. His life was dedicated to Christ. All of his thoughts, all of his feelings, all of his words, all of his actions, all of his motives, all of his goals were devoted to Christ's service. Christ was the source of his strength and hope in life. For him, life was all about loving Christ and fellowshipping with Christ and abiding in Christ and sharing Christ and following Christ and suffering for Christ and preaching Christ. Everything, everything he did in his life was for Christ. Another way to think about this is what do you think of when you think of Jack Nicholas, golf. When you think of Nolan Ryan, think of baseball. When you think of Steve Jobs, you think of I stuff. When you think of the Apostle Paul, what do you think? Christ. It's almost like they were one and the same. You couldn't separate. Paul from Christ. And the question is, what word comes into people's minds when they think of you? When somebody thinks of you and your name pops into their head, what word comes to their mind? Oh, that it would be Christ. That our lives would be lived in such a way that that. People can't separate us from Christ, Christ from us. They say, what does this mean to live as Christ? It seems kind of a vague statement. In fact, in the original language, there are no verbs here. It just says, Paul just simply said, to live Christ, to die gain. And that's all that's there. To live Christ, die gain. Well, turn over to Galatians 2.20 for a moment. Many of you have this verse memorized already, but I think this, this testimony that Paul gave to the churches in Galatia is probably the best commentary on, on what it means to live as Christ. Well, what does that mean? Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. In other words, the old me is gone, dead. And it's no longer I who live, my life is over. I gave up my life when I came to Christ. I denied myself. I took up my cross. I followed him. I gave up my life. And so it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. 
So now it's all about Christ, it's not about me anymore, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. In other words, I live in complete dependence on the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who loved me and gave himself up for me. In other words, what drives my life is the the awareness that I have been greatly loved by the Lord Jesus Christ to the point that he was willing to give up his own life for me. And now it's my great joy to give up my life for him. To live as Christ and to die as gain. And by the way, the only way that you can say that to die is gain is if your life is Christ. You can't have one without the other here. You gotta, they, this is a package deal. To live is Christ and to die is gain. You can't just say, well, to die is gain. Well, no, it's not true if you're not living for Christ, if your life is not Christ. In other words, if, you're, if your life is all about Christ, then it's true that death is gain. You don't lose anything when you die. You gain everything. You end up getting all of Christ for all eternity. You get to be with Christ and, and be like Christ, which was your goal in life. See, if your goal in life is other things, then guess what? Death is loss, not gain. But if your goal is Christ, to, to, to be with Christ and to be like Christ, then guess what? When you die, man, it's, you, you, your, your goal is ultimately fulfilled. Your dream comes true. Your passion is finally satisfied. Your pursuit is over. Not to mention the fact that you no longer have to deal with sin and suffering and you're relieved of pain and sorrow and there's no, no more trials and there's no, no more tears. And for that reason alone, I'm sure Paul would have welcomed death and the relief it would have provided him from all the physical and emotional pain and agony that he endured for the cause of Christ and his church. I mean, just go, go and read 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and that list of a grocery list of all the things that he endured, uh, the shipwrecks and the, the being attacked by wild animals and, and, and being stoned and left for dead multiple times and whipped and beaten and all that stuff. I'm sure Paul's like, bus is leaving for heaven. I, I'm, I'm on that bus. I'm on the first bus out of here. And obviously going to heaven would have been his preference, but he knew that there was still work for him to do here on earth. But either way, again, it was a win-win situation. I mean, if you die, you get to be in the presence of Christ. That's a win. But if you live, you get to serve Christ and help more people come to know Christ. That's a win and two. And so it's no wonder Paul had such a hard time choosing between living or dying. And that's what we see next in the remainder of this, this passage. We go from Paul's conviction that Christ would be exalted by his death, and now we see how he was convinced that the church would be edified by his life. The church would be edified by his life. And, and again, he didn't know which to choose here. And, and notice he says in verse 22, but if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. I'm hard-pressed from both directions. I mean, if I'm to go on living... I would get to continue leading people to Christ and equipping the saints and planning churches and training leaders and writing inspired letters to the churches. But I don't know what to choose. I mean, he was in a real dilemma. He was torn between two glorious options or opportunities. He says, I'm hard-pressed from both directions. And so... I think it's so interesting that we get a sneak peek into Paul's heart here and he, 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 he put in print 
the internal debate that was going on in his heart and mind. And granted, he knew that decision wasn't up to him, ultimately, whether he lived or, or died, but if given the choice, I, I honestly don't know what I would choose. How about you? If you could choose between staying here and serving Christ or dying and going to heaven, which would you choose? It's not really an easy decision, is it? Hopefully you would err on the side of dying and going to heaven, right? That's the side that Paul erred on. Verse 23, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having desire to be to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yeah, I guess that would be true. That word depart there, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, that word was used to describe a number of things in the ancient world, unloosing a prisoner and setting them free, removing the yoke from an oxen or an ox after a long day's work, pulling up anchor and hoisting the sails for a journey at sea, and maybe my favorite, pulling up tent stakes and breaking camp. All very vivid images of death. What is death like? It's like being let out of jail. It's, it's, it's like taking the, the yoke off of you and being put out to pasture where you could rest and it's, it's pulling up anchor and hoisting the sails and going on a journey. And, and ultimately, it's just, it's just packing up and going to heaven. In, in 2 Corinthians 5.1, Paul said this, For we know that if, if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So Paul likened his, his body, our bodies, to earthly tents, which sometimes... Break down. How's it going out there, right? You feel like your tent's breaking down? The older you get, right, it starts to break down. And, and, and he says, hey, don't worry about it. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. In other words, this, this body of ours is simply a temporary dwelling place for us on earth. We are aliens and strangers who are just passing through this world. And this was the tent that God gave us for the journey. So life for the Christian is sort of like camping out. I'm sure you all camped out, right? At least one time in your life until you realize, man, we're, not, we're never doing that again. That's no fun, right? But you can, you can endure camping because you know it's not, what? Permanent. It's just temporary. You're just there for a night or two or a week or two. And, 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 and so you, you're willing to go without the normal comforts of home for a little while. And, and yet... If we were all honest, listen, we'd much rather prefer living in a house rather than a tent or sleeping in a bed with a nice mattress rather than in a sleeping bag on an air mattress or cooking with an oven rather than over an open fire or taking a shower rather than just kind of washing off in the river or the, the lake or using toilet paper rather than leaves. I mean, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? I mean, this is like some things that happen in, at camping. You're like, okay, I, I can put up with this because it's temporary, but I sure can't wait till I get home. And so there's a lot of things in life that, that we put up with. We may not have all the comforts that we would like. And that's okay, because this is not our temporary home. It, we're going to get to go home someday. And it's going to be way, way better than camping out here on earth. And that's what Paul says. He says, for, for that is, what? Very much better. It's like he stacks words together here to make sure that we get the point that, hey, this is, um, this, this is the best there is here. Heaven is the best case scenario. I mean, this is a triple comparative, very much better. And so Paul was just simply, hey, um, I would much rather die and go to heaven because... I would get to be with the most important person in my life, Jesus Christ. 
And that is what makes heaven far superior than earth. There is no comparison between our life here on earth and our life in heaven. I'm sure you've heard it or you've even said it. When someone dies, well, they're in a much better place. Which is true. And which should cause us to rejoice for them and with them. But even then, when we have the hope that our loved one is in the presence of the Lord, we still grieve the painful loss of their presence in our lives, right? God, Christ got his prayer answered in John 17 that those that you've given me would be with me, right? So Jesus got what he wanted even if you didn't get what you wanted. I think it's also important just for us to note how this verse, verse 23, having desire to depart and be with Christ, refutes, clearly refutes, some of the most common misconceptions regarding what happens to us when we die. Don't, Don't miss this here. Because there are some who believe and teach that when a believer dies, they remain in a state of unconsciousness until the resurrection of their bodies at the rapture. It's what's called soul sleep. Soul sleep. You may have heard of that. There's some churches, some believers uh, who, who think that's what happens, that when you die, you, you go into the ground and your soul sleeps. You take a nap, a long nap, waiting for Christ to return. Others believe and teach that when a person dies, they go to this intermediate place where they can continue to work to earn their way into heaven. That's called what? Purgatory. Well, again, that's clearly refuted by Paul's understanding of death here, that a believer consciously enters the presence of the Lord the moment they die. Paul was trying to decide between staying here and serving the Lord or, or being with the Lord in his presence. And if, if soul sleep were real, then, then surely Paul would have, wouldn't have been in such a quandary here. There's no decision between taking a nap until Christ's return and continuing to serve Christ here on this earth until he returned. I'm picking staying, staying awake and serving Christ. There would be no dilemma The point is, you can only be in one of two places. You're either on earth or you're in eternity, either heaven or hell. We know that from some other verses as well. Matthew 17, 3, the transfiguration, we know that Moses and Elijah appeared along with Christ, talking to the the disciples there, so they weren't sleeping. They weren't in purgatory. They were alive and well, if you will, in heaven. How about the thief on the cross? What did Jesus say in Luke 23, 43? He said to him, truly I say to you that after you take a long nap, you'll be with me in heaven. Or after you earn your way to heaven through purgatory, you'll be with me. No, he says what? Today you will be with me in paradise. And then probably the clearest text is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Verse 6, Paul said, Therefore, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. In other words, there's only one two places. You can either be in your body, right? Or you can be absent from your body and home with the Lord. So you're either home in the body, absent from the Lord, or absent from your body in the presence of the Lord. In other words, there's instantaneous arrival of your soul to heaven. Notice what Paul goes on to say, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Hey, listen, I'll just be honest with you guys, I'd much rather be dead and in heaven, enjoying the presence of the Lord, but 
to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. And so, like the true Christ-like servant that Paul was, he made his decisions based on what would be best for others rather than what would be best for himself. And he applied his own instruction that he was going to give them in chapter 2, Verse 3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regarding one another is more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. And then he goes on to use Christ as the ultimate example. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Paul here was considering others more important than himself. He was putting others' needs before his own personal desires. And even as Christ was willing to forgo his heavenly blessings by coming to earth to serve us, Paul was willing to postpone his heavenly blessings to keep serving the saints here on earth. And what an example Paul is to us here. He was not only willing to postpone going to heaven in order to help believers grow in Christ, but Don't miss this. He was also willing to go to hell in order to help unbelievers come to know Christ. I know that may sound shocking, but I don't know how else to interpret what Paul said in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, when he said, I'm telling the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He was so burdened about his fellow Israelites and how lost they were that he said, you know what, I wish that I were cursed, that I was separated from Christ so that they would come to know Christ. That's a passion for the gospel. That's a passion for people to know Jesus. Back in Philippians, notice he says, yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. So Paul knew that he was going to be released and, 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 and uh, be able to return to them, have a reunion with them. Now, I don't think this knowledge was, 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 was prophetic necessarily or based on direct revelation from God. I think this was more of a hunch based on Paul's wisdom, his discernment, his, his experience. He saw how this thing was going to play out. And he was confident that he would be acquitted in his trial and, and eventually be released so he could continue to strengthen and support the saints in Philippi and other churches uh, that he planted over the years. And notice, though, what was Paul concerned about? I'll remain, he says, and continue with you all for your, what? Progress and joy in the faith. Paul was concerned about their faith, which doesn't just refer to their saving faith, their their trusting in Jesus, but their entire relationship with God, what what they believed and how they lived. And Paul wanted to see people grounded in the Word and, and living it out in their daily lives. He wanted people to be continually progressing in their spiritual lives, and and he did everything he could to fill up where they were lacking in their faith so that they would be mature and complete, lacking nothing. And we know based on the rest of what he says in this letter that these dear saints still needed to be encouraged. They still needed to be warned. They still needed to be protected. They still needed to be reminded. There was areas that they were lacking in their faith. And again, Paul's main desire wasn't that the church in Philippi would increase in size, but that it would increase in their what? In their faith. That's what mattered to Paul. And Paul knew that the more they, their faith increased, the more their joy would increase. He wanted to continue with them all for their progress and joy in the faith. The more we grow in our relationship 
with the Lord, our knowledge of the Lord, our love for the Lord, the more we fully understand and grasp our privileges in Christ, the more we clearly see the, the riches of our salvation in Christ, listen, the more our joy will increase. Increasing faith produces increasing joy. Again, a great test. Where's your joy at right now? What's the joy meter reading in your life right now? It's either because you don't understand your riches in Christ or maybe you've, you're choosing not to meditate on those and think about those. You're so focused on your problems or whatever, but you're not meditating on the privileges, the blessings that you have in Christ. I guarantee you, if you focus on those things, your joy meter will go up. Your level of joy will go up. Notice what he, how he ends this. He says, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Might sound strange at first reading that, that why would Paul want them to be proud of him? And you need to know that the Greek word order there is, 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 is really this, in order that your proud confidence may abound in Christ Jesus as you see him working in and through me. That's the idea of, of, of the original language. Paul was saying, when I'm, when I'm released from prison and I'm able to return to see you and strengthen you and encourage you, then you'll have even more reason to boast in Christ and praise his great name for answering your prayers on my behalf for my release and my return. Notice again just how joy serves as the bookends for this passage. Verse 18, yes, and I will rejoice. And then he says again that you would have joy in your faith and proud confidence in me. That it may abound in Christ through my coming to you again. Well, we know that Paul came there again. From his later letters, he was released. He entered another term of service, which included a trip through Macedonia and, again, presumably to Philippi before his final imprisonment and, and martyrdom back in Rome. We know that from what uh, he wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. He said, as I urge you upon my departure from or, or for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus. So he said, listen, I, I'm, I'm heading out to Macedonia again. I'm going back to Macedonia, and that's where Philippi was. And then in his second letter to Timothy, and, and turn there with me just as we close. You need to see this. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. I love this. This is when Paul was, had been rearrested, and he was, again, standing trial before Nero. And um, I think he knew this time was going to be different. It's going to have a different outcome. But that didn't change his level of confidence, his level of joy. Notice he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. This is it. My life is about to be over here on this earth. And notice his confidence here, his peace. Verse 7, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, and I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearing. This could be the epitaph of every faithful servant of Christ. I fought the good fight, I finished the course, and I've kept the faith. When the Roman executioner's sword finally severed Paul's head from his body, his soul immediately left his earthly tent and entered the presence of the Lord. And Christ was indeed exalted by his life and by his death. And if you want the same to be true of you, if you want... Christ to be exalted and magnified by your life and by your death, then you must be able to say with Paul, for to me, to live is Christ 
and to die is gain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this epic text that is so deep and so rich that we've only really scratched the surface this morning, but I pray that it would whet our appetite to go deeper, to understand more and to figure out ways to apply this practically to our lives, this this concept of living as Christ and dying as gain. Father, we pray that your spirit would accomplish this work in our hearts so that we could truly say with Paul that for us, to live as Christ and to die as gain. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.